Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Golden, and welcome to Making Markets. This show explores the psychology and structure that make up markets all over the world. Each week, we speak to experts about a different market so you can see what actually happens when money changes hands. From mainstream stock and bond markets to esoteric niches like vineyards, antique art, and crypto, we explain the transactions that underpin our economy. Making Markets is part of the Colossus family of podcasts, and you can find all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources at joincolossus.com. Eric Golden is the CEO of Canopy Capital. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Canopy Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be construed or relied on as investment, legal, or tax advice. Clients of Canopy Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast, including positions that are contrary to the opinions offered. My guest today is David Kalk. David used to run Peter Thiel's Macro Fund and is currently the CIO of Reflexive Capital, where he spends most of his time managing the crypto-focused liquid trading fund. We start the conversation by asking where we are in the new regime. We then talk about reflexivity and how it applies to crypto. We also cover his trading process, how he evaluates new tokens, Solana's resurgence, the Bitcoin ETF, and more. Please enjoy this conversation with David Kalk. So David, this is going to be fun. Crypto is back just like it was 2021. The question everybody wants to know, are we back? Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. So I think you have a disclaimer. This is not financial advice, not specific to my investment strategy. And I'll just say, you often hear traders talk on a podcast and they sound really smart about the next six months, but you have to be very careful because the risk is they change their mind the next day. The time horizon for a trader is 20 minutes. And so at risk of doing that myself, it's currently December. Are we back? I think the answer is yes and no. I believe this current rally, it's limited for now, and there's some reason to be skeptical, but there's a whole bunch of assets that I like that I don't think we'll see prices from three months ago. And I think this rally has a very important effect on market psychology to prime the next run. And it's a really good sign about where we are in the process. So there's definitely an approach where, to answer your question, you just want to be long here. It just depends on how active you want to be and what your time horizon is. In crypto, you have these big, sharp bull runs with so much momentum and so much reflexivity, which is a topic we should definitely talk about. And that's the most important thing to model. And you really just want to bring as big of a chip stack as you can to take big swings of that. Being persistently long from cycle to cycle has not really worked out. So I don't know if this is like a foreshock, which is an aftershock, but before a quake, I don't know if it just goes on from here. But I do think to tie it all together, this bounce has a really important effect for the future where people are reminded about how convex this stuff is and how quickly it can move. And start your process, start doing work, getting ready. Because the lesson from last cycle was this stuff just moves very fast. And if you're not early, it can be really hard to actually make any money at all. Before we get into reflexive and your investment process, looking at this most recent run, in your opinion, was there a specific catalyst now that you can point back to to say this was the beginning of it? Bitcoin's had an amazing year. It itself has pulled in a lot of new money. And that probably started in March around some of the banking issues that we had. And I've tried to separate money coming into Bitcoin and money coming into the rest of the stuff. Because I think in order to get a real rally and get the reflexivity really going, you need money coming directly into the other stuff. If you look at that universe, crypto, ex-Bitcoin, ex-stable, ex-Ethereum is about $300 billion. My question is, how do we get a rally where that goes from 300 to 3 trillion? Just like last cycle, we went from, depending on when you started, straight from 100 billion to 1 trillion. 
I think you need large sums of external capital to see that. What I do think is actually happening now, distinct from the 2021 cycle, is basically all the money that's coming to Bitcoin, you have the crypto native money reshuffling back into their old favorites. And I think there's an important nuance difference in that versus there being something new going on. And so going back to your question about the catalyst, I think it's almost like it's missing the catalyst as it relates to narrative, which is one of the reasons I don't believe in it. But as I said before, I think this is how it begins. Basically, money coming to Bitcoin and then being rotated out of the captive crypto money. Maybe the best way to begin diving into your investor process is this idea of reflexivity, which you've mentioned a couple of times. Walk me through what reflexivity is and why the term is so important. You named your firm after it. Yeah, so it's a trading podcast. So I think a lot of listeners would be aware of the George Soros theory of reflexivity, prices move fundamentals and not the opposite. And it's based on a premise that all the market participants have this distorted view of what's going on and price has a large influence on that. So you end up with this feedback loop where the participants view impacts the fundamentals, which then further impacts the participants views. And as the author George Soros lays out in his book, that's what leads to these boom bust cycles and puts them in motion. And this happens across asset classes. So you can think of rising home prices leads to banks increasing their mortgage lending, which then further drives up home prices. But crypto is like the most reflexive asset class I've ever seen, where in the bull market, it seems like to everybody that crypto is going to take over the world. We're going to replace JP Morgan and Amazon. And then the bear market, it seems like this is just a total scam. And there's a few important channels, which I think you can think about how they work so violently in crypto. One is just on the asset allocation basis. People will even admit that they just chase price. And when price makes it look like something interesting is going on, that's when the asset allocation process happens. When people talk about the fundamental measures that they look at, it's mostly a reflection of what is the dollar value of things moving on chain. So if the token price goes up, the dollar value price goes up. There's a lot of projects which through their customer acquisition strategy are just offering yield to mercenaries to come and use their protocol. So the more projects get funded, the more yield is available, the more activity is going on. So much of the history of crypto is a large group of speculators speculating about quote unquote fundamental activity of 100 DeFi people in crypto. And all of this makes it really hard to actually figure out what's going on. Credit would be the last channel as well. Credit's the main mechanism in which it works in other asset classes. But in crypto, you have DeFi where you literally pledge the DeFi token into a borrow lend protocol. Then you borrow to go levered long additional DeFi tokens. Then meanwhile, your DeFi volumes go up and so it looks like the DEX is doing better. And so these feedback loops are just so powerful. We think it's such an important property that we named the fund after it. And you got to look for turning points through that lens. The catalysts can be really hard to see sometimes in retrospect, but you need to take seriously that in the bull run, this is probably quite a bit of what's going on and then look for the reversal and expect it to happen on the way down. And it sounds very perverse or a trader or whatever, but taking a step back have to be a bad thing either. If the net result is that you attract a bunch of venture funding in that cycle, and then you attract a lot of talent, maybe some things are going to be built. But there's some future state of the world where there's more sustainable economics between users and speculators. But for now, it's hard to imagine the next cycle being much different than the previous one. I want to separate crypto from reflexivity for a second. On this idea of reflexivity, how do you know, because it just sounds like a positive feedback loop that price mm -hmm. goes up, so then the prospects are better. The idea is that the company is in a more optimistic state, so it has the ability to attract more things. And Soros is obviously one of the most famous macro traders across multiple asset class where you're looking for this property. How do you end up not just being a fool that's extrapolating so far into the future, it's going to get better, which is going to get better, which is going to get better. What is the turning point so you're not just sitting there holding a speculative asset that goes straight up and goes straight down and using a word like reflexivity? I think you have to take very seriously the possibility that it's working in either direction at the extremes. 
And what tends to happen is we can move from one extreme to the next. But one sense would be over the last 12 to 18 months, if you took this theory very seriously, you should assume that there's more going on in crypto than meets the eye. And I think if you spoke to a lot of people building in the space, they would tell you that's true, that prices aren't a reflection of the progress. And so you should assume the market's undershooting. But basically, it's an idea that the market's going to undershoot and overshoot. And trading that perfectly is not a reasonable expectation to have for everybody. So I think it's like the best thing you do to not get caught in the reflexivity is to take very seriously when it seems like things are going best or worse, that it's probably the reflexivity that's causing a large divergence from whatever underlying trend there is. And so at the exact same time, when it feels like crypto is about to take over the world, assume that maybe it's not. One way to hedge this would just be when the momentum swings in either direction. So when you've had a large rally or a large sell-off and the momentum swings in a significant way, maybe like we're seeing right now, you take very seriously that the overshoot or undershoot can reverse. And maybe that's just the easiest way to approach it. So if I try to look through this this lens of reflexivity, this idea that the momentum begets momentum and that the market overshoots, the market then would have overshot to the downside and now is beginning to correct. As you think about Bitcoin over the past two months, what things do you look at to say, yeah, I think this is going to continue or more likely to continue and this is the beginning of people realizing versus nope, this is actually the overshoot because the market moved too fast. If I can make the separation of Bitcoin and the rest of the space, which I think if I were to reflect on the last two months, it's been the momentum reversal of everything else, which has had the biggest shift where you had that universe of what people call altcoins, like non-Bitcoin, non-Ethereum. You know, there had been about a six-month bleed where the amount of times I started hearing in that regime that one should just be levered long Bitcoin and Ethereum because those the only crypto strategy which made sense was probably an indicator in itself. But the biggest momentum swing has been in those. And that's the one which in the initial comments I was saying, I think there's an important shift as it relates to the future with open questions around whether it just goes from here. For Bitcoin specifically, I think that momentum reversal happened in March. And so are we at a mature point in that there's a pretty consensus view developing that one should just sell the ETF moment itself because the flows will be disappointing like they always are. Bitcoin's like a pretty important thing to map for the overall market. I also think it tends to have a bit less reflexivity than the rest of the space. It has a longer history of being a real thing. So people's discount of the convexity profile of Bitcoin potentially being a big thing is not vacillating as much in the bull market and the bear market. So my mapping of how the cycle usually happens, and you have to be really careful with this cycle analysis because N is like two or whatever, but you can do research and assume the properties are the same, but you have to be a little careful, is that Bitcoin usually, as opposed to boom busting, it'll probably stabilize at the point in which the momentum is asserting itself in everything else. And really, that's what you look at for... It's like the next leg of the cycle is led by everything else. And Bitcoin can stay here and it can appreciate whatever positive alpha has been embedded in Bitcoin probably deteriorates quite a bit around these price levels because the marginal dollar is going to start potentially going into the other stuff. And that'll be a world which Bitcoin can rally. Maybe it'll basically just stay the same. If you go back to 2021, there's this period where Bitcoin is basically unchanged over a long period of time outside of a brief moment in the fall of 2021. And that was while the rest of the space was just going crazy. So I think we're either at that moment now or in the period immediately preceding it in a way that Bitcoin's probably just going to be a pretty stable asset relative to almost everything else in the space. It's funny they call Bitcoin a stable asset. It does when you're looking at the world you're investing. Maybe it's a good time to just give a step back or reflects of the firm, because I think this is sometimes common. The fund that you started both has a venture capital arm and a liquid trading arm. Could you break out how you guys are structured? 
We launched this fund in July of this year. We spun out of a large macro fund called Commonwealth Asset Management. We have these two distinct strategies, a liquid long bias trading strategy and a venture fund. The liquid fund, it's a top-down active approach, which fits best in a bucket of a long bias fundamental approach. But importantly, as maybe you can tell from the discussion, really prioritize and understands the regime to inform how long to be what sort of stuff you want to be long and just taking the boom bust very seriously. Your goal is just to capture and monetize as many of the returns of the cycle as you can. So there's this top layer, which is a pretty distinct approach from other strategies. The venture strategies is uniquely focused on real pain points for real people and real enterprises. And it really starts at the pain point from people in our network, enterprise going sector to sector and tries to look at are there ways that crypto is better suited to solve the underlying problem. And I would think this is pretty distinct from a lot of what we see, which is a lot of crypto solutions looking for problems. So these two businesses are separate, but our partners were unified by being sober institutional investors with significant investing experience. I personally spend most of my time on the liquid product traded macro for 15 years. And so probably will speak mostly about that. So I know you, with your background as a macro trader, you ran Teal's macro fund. You've been a liquid trader. I'm curious, when you have venture capital in crypto, how does that impact that business model? Because before crypto, I don't think that venture capital companies were able to get liquidity all of a sudden from a token. So how does, from your perspective as a macro trader, there are a lot of VC firms that suddenly have liquid trading desks or partner with liquid trading funds. That's a bit different than what I would consider traditional venture capital. How does that impact the venture capital investor process? As a trader, I think it drives significant market inefficiency. I have this heuristic that traders are often bad investors. They can be too short-term. And depending on exactly what type of trader you are, it can be really momentum about stuff in a way that is not consistent with long-term investing. But if I were to flip that around, I would say VCs are probably the exact wrong people to be managing liquid products. Some of the skill sets or heuristics you develop as a VC to guide success with long-term views is just not really consistent with what it takes to be a trader. Being a trader is about being open-minded and changing your mind and being humble. And that just doesn't drive success in the VC world. So I do think that one of the reasons I'm very drawn to the space is it feels like a market that's full of whether they've hired traders to do it or they're trying to do it themselves. You basically have a market that's all the participants are operating under a much different time horizon than the one that I'm operating. It's an inefficient market. Most people initially think of the short-term inefficiencies, the arbitrage opportunities. You have a lot of professionals doing that. And then you have some people that are here for the casino, unsophisticated, non-professional investors. And then you have VCs and they're just operating on a, a much longer time horizon. And so the opportunity exists because it's very uncompetitive to operate on the time horizon of a macro trader, which is to look for opportunities over two weeks to three months and collect some of the alpha that's available because you're in some sense competing against people that are thinking over a much different time horizon. And so do you think about yourself on the liquid side now explicitly? Do you have a benchmark? Are you just trying to outperform Bitcoin? Do you go to cash? How do you think about risk on, risk off? At this point, ETF notwithstanding, it's pretty easy for people to buy Bitcoin and Ethereum themselves. And so there are some smart beta strategies, which maybe discretionarily or systematically can create alpha versus those asset classes. But the rest of the space, this like highly convex boom bust part of the space is actually really hard to get into with passive solutions. And I think it's the space where external management is most helpful. So our mandate is to help investors, I think, get into that stuff. And so we've chosen a benchmark out there, which tries to reduce the impact of Bitcoin and Ethereum in looking at a larger set of names. So call it the top 100 
tokens listed by market cap, we're, we're focused on helping investors access those. And so the benchmark reflects that. And when you think about that, how do you think about liquidity or how far will you go down that list? Because obviously Bitcoin and Ethereum is such a large part of the total market cap, as you pointed out. What did you have? The index X those two, X stablecoin, just 300 billion? Is that the number? Yeah. It's a small asset class relative to the traditional assets that you used to trade. How do you think about illiquidity and how far you can go down or get in and out of a position? Yeah. So our portfolio will often not include Bitcoin or Ethereum. So yeah, the liquidity analysis we need to run is relative to that figure. When we started the business, we expect it to be very scalable. And so a lot of the design of the strategy is to make assumptions about a terminal size, which is pretty large, but we need to shock that portfolio and assume basically all the investors leave at the exact same time. What we've seen is sometimes you can try to protect people from themselves, but going back to the reflexivity point, people want to allocate when prices are going up and when prices are going down. Even if you've done a good job, they might all want to leave in the exact same moment. And so you have to shock your portfolio to assume that they all leave. And it's probably in the exact same period in which market liquidity deteriorates quite a bit. And so you can define your universe, which for us ends up being around the top 100 by running that analysis. Fundraising can be correlated too, but we've tried to be pretty honest and disciplined about how much we can scale the strategy relative to those constraints. Can you give us an example of an actual trade? I totally respect that people can't talk about the trades that they're doing today, but something I love talking to real money investors, people that actually trade is an edge that no longer exists. And I think crypto moves pretty quickly. Can you give us an example of a trade that demonstrates your investment process? You're correct in that it, sometimes it feels like the space is just accelerating through 30 years of finance until a very short period of time. And so all of these timelines are squeezed in a pretty tight way. But what you also have in crypto is, at least in our view, you have these very strong regimes that they don't change that often. But when they do, it's all the trades that worked in the last regime probably don't work. It's almost like you can multiply by negative one sometimes in terms of the things that work. And so I've been talking about the potential regime transition that we're in. One way to characterize that would be to look at, are there certain types of trades which worked two months ago and aren't really working anymore? There's actually some evidence of that. So one of the most successful strategies through most of this year, I talked about this altcoin bleed, was to basically look at the supply and demand of the tokens and try to understand where there are large changes in supply higher, and then be short those tokens, either on an outright sense or in more of a long-short strategy. The supply, it can either have this constant emissions, which is this like wears on the name over long periods of time, or these very cuspy cliffs where all the seed investors get their tokens unlocked on the same day. And so around those supply events, there was a pretty successful strategy of just being short. Some of the names which the supply shift was changing quite a bit relative to any consistent amount of demand. And there's some strategies which worked really well. Those strategies stopped working over the last few weeks, where there's still been names where supply has been unlocked. But based on the shift in market participants use, where before it was my tokens are unlocked, I better sell this before it goes down another 50% because that's been the regime that I'm in. Now people are reminded about how quickly this stuff can move on the upside. And if I'm not forced to sell, I probably won't. So those trades seem to stop working in the same way. One other example, actually, which is an interesting one, is it's felt like the market's been under attack over the last, really since 2021. Everyone's like, show me the value accrual. Why do we need these tokens or whatever? And that insecurity has meant that people have been most audible about three different assets that have designed their tokenomics in the most stock-like way. And it's those assets, Lido and Maker, and these things that it was the rebuttal against show me the value. But in some sense, it's not a very good rebuttal. The tokenomics and the actual value accrual of those assets does not reflect 98% of the rest of the space, but those were the counterpoints. And those were some of the most successful examples for the quote-unquote fundamental investors 
in the space, people that might have come from pod shops and traditional finance and were trying to bring their frameworks and how to invest in crypto around business models. All those trades have stopped working in a relative sense as well. It's not like they've gone down, but the market leadership has changed from fundamental valuation, which seems like an actual inherently bearish thing in crypto, to now like, how do I maximize my convexity profile? How do I have optionality on large networks building, which is really the bull market thing. This all points to a regime transition. I think there's still an open question of how it happens, but the nature of the trades which work have been changing quite quickly. Those are great examples. Let's dive into the first one. I think it came up, it might've been the All In podcast that made it famous when they were talking about trading Solana to each other. But for most people that are in traditional markets that had traded liquid, maybe not understanding venture capital or how these token warrants were being drafted, that basically said, if you buy equity in these companies that could then have a token in the future, if you get a token, you, the investor, can't sell it for a certain period of time. The details of that contract usually say you can't sell it to just anybody. You could sell it to someone else, someone else that was also a participant or of that same institutional quality. One thing that was interesting was this idea of what I think got coined happy unlocks, which is where someone would post a tweet thread, hey, there's a bunch of supply coming on the market. The natural first level thinking is if there's supply and the supply couldn't be sold before and now it can, that should be negative. And then you'd have an unlock and the price would go up and people would be upset because they were short thinking this piece of knowledge they knew. To me, this happy unlock was that fact that a lot of venture capitalists, to your point, who have very different time horizons, who just got this immediate bonus, were quick to be like, I'll sell it to you for a discount. So the people who wanted to sell had already sold essentially. And so that's a version of a happy unlock. And so I think what you were saying is back to this, what is the sentiment of the market is when the market's going down, suddenly these are not happy unlocks because people don't want these things. Are we back in that phase now where now these venture capitalists want as many tokens as they can? They're excited about all the Solana that they bought years ago. No, I think it's the right point. It's an important observation that there's a lot of money in the space, closed-end funds, and these funds differently than any other cycle before. And this is maybe one of the reasons that crypto is so quote unquote resilient versus at least what some people thought was going to happen was that there was actually much less forced selling over the last 12 months than you would have expected because Andreessen doesn't have to sell anything. I think that the psychological distinction is one in which if you're not being forced to, when you're supposed to make an economic decision about selling it, do you think it's going to go down or do you think that you can still achieve some insane convex outcome? And so that's why I think it's The specific nature of how quickly the rest of the space has moved has really affected market psychology already. And what we need to combine it with is something new, but that's bullish unlock, happy unlock thing, much more likely. The market does have discounting mechanisms. So I think into a lot of the big unlocks, one way to navigate that strategy was to layer on some sense of what the positioning was ahead of it. Early in this regime, I was just saying we got out of these trades worked really well. But then everyone else caught on that you should be short unlocks. And what you noticed was that the market discounting mechanism made it so at the actual event itself, there was not a big move, but really it would get discounted over 30 days before. And so you had to be early and earlier and the edge got smaller and smaller. And then so you get this regime transition and anybody still trading that way probably got run over a little bit. And now the strategy doesn't work anymore. And so then let's do the second one. It reminds me of a Silicon Valley episode, the one about no revenue where the founder's like, we're going to make revenue. And then the venture company's like, no revenue. No revenue is worth a lot. This idea, do you care about the fundamentals or the underlying project and the ability of if it's a real business or not? Or are these simply tokens to be traded, understanding the supply demand 
how many people want them, how many people are buying them. And it's quite irrelevant. I don't mean that in a judgmental way. There's lots yeah. of people that trade this way with other asset classes. I think crypto gets this huge point that you made that when it falls, suddenly everyone feels like an idiot for ever owning it and needs to explain to everyone why they held it. it doesn't happen when you buy a company that falls 90% on both crypto, it does. But do yeah. the fundamentals have any impact in how you think about the assets that you trade or how you trade them? Yes, there's actually a lot I'd like to unpack there. Being a macro investor is mostly about anticipating shifts in supply and demand. Basically, asset prices over the time rise in which you're focused, always dominated by flows. You can understand how the economy works, but it more relates to how the narrative is going to shift around how the economy works than the actual terminal economic. And so in crypto, I, as opposed to trying to put these tokens into an equity box, I still mostly use a commodity model. And there's nice regulatory implications of saying these things are commodities, but that's not why I'm saying it. I mean, basically, like I think these things might have some intrinsic value anchor, but most of this is just about supply and demand. And as I was saying, in some market regimes, supply can be pretty relevant where you have big stepwise changes in the amount of tokens, but otherwise the demand side really seems to dominate. And specifically, it's the psychology around this speculative demand in advance of real usage. And to be honest, this is true of something like oil. If you're an oil trader and you sit around trying to count barrels to figure out where things are going to clear in 2026, you lose money every time. The way you trade oil is to understand what's going to happen to Chinese PMI and how are people going to relate to Chinese industrial demand. That's a bigger part of trading over that time rise. And so I don't want to say worrying about fundamentals are bad. At some point, I think it's important for the space to develop token models that allow for capital formation around them. But we're not in that moment yet. And the time rise under which I'm operating, you're not going to take bets around that, only to the extent you're doing it through how the market participants view that stuff. So I think it's also even another point would be like really hard for a lot of the teams. Let's just say you're a team operating in the US and you want to deliver some revenue to the token through the various mechanisms. You could do that by taking fees and burning tokens or taking fees and paying validators or other revenue sharing mechanisms. Right now, you're basically not allowed to do that in any straightforward way if anyone in your team is in the US. So it's pretty hard to say we should have fundamental value-driven model when you're investing in things where the teams can't even do that. The best thing they can do is try to develop a big network and share some of that revenue later, which that's also the model that a lot of consumer internet companies use for a long time. And when you're working off network effects, which seem to be an important theme here, what's not to say that's the right approach now? I mean, you can have this debate about how you develop a moat in crypto, which is like an open source project where you can just control C, control V versus moats that are developed in consumer internet companies. But clearly that's the market model right now. And so as a trader, I'm mostly focused on that. You mentioned oil and how you think about crypto like a commodity. Is part of your process at all involved traditional assets and how they're responding to crypto? I think right now is a pretty interesting moment. There's been many regimes, many cycles in crypto where it decouples bank crisis or inflation prints, and it does what people don't say it's supposed to do, and it breaks some narrative and people get upset about it. But right now you have this moment where you have crypto rallying much harder than other assets. Do you look at its relationship to other risk assets, or is it not yet gotten its way into your old world of macro funds where it's even a lever on their balance sheet to play with? So that last thing you mentioned is definitely the cross-asset portfolio ownership of crypto leading to correlation. There's like the risk parity thing where you own everything and then the portfolio unwinds and so everything sells off at once. It felt like there was maybe some of that in previous regimes, but any position that was held through the last two years basically got taken out. I try to understand exactly why these relationships exist. And I think having some nuance to it can help you 
use the relationships a little bit better. So one example would be in 2021, crypto and the NASDAQ started to become very correlated. And that made sense because crypto is rebranded as a technology investment. And so you had people investing in it for the same sort of convexity, building large networks or platforms or something. But really, I think the hype cycle of crypto was really correlated with the hype cycle in IPOs starting in 20, but mostly in 2021, where in the NASDAQ, there's the tech monopolies, and then there's the smaller startups. And what we saw was a lot of IPOs, some really good companies, but the price at which they IPO'd and were distributed to the market was a reflection of the total tech bubble price. And so the pattern of what was actually very correlated was a set of the NASDAQ that IPO'd in 2021. That was the strongest relationship you saw, crypto versus that vintage. There were good companies in there and there are bad companies. People talk about SPACs, but it almost didn't matter if you were a good company or a bad company. If you IPO'd in 2021, your chart looks very similar to the crypto chart where the overhang hangs over you for so long. The amount of late entrance, the amount of people that bought Solana above $200, the amount of people that bought X stock IPO in 2021, anytime that name bounced over the 12 months after that, it immediately sold by the late entrant who's trying to get out. And so what we saw was there was a period then after that where the NASDAQ was performing because the mega caps were performing. We've seen a little bit of that this year as well. And if you looked at the other subset of the index that I was talking about, the relationship still exists. But what happens is like the NASDAQ diverged between the monopolies and everything else. And that's a big one. This year, there's been counter to the prevailing narrative that higher rates are bad for crypto, which definitely going back to 2021, it was the start of the hiking cycle, which broke the liquidity cycle. It was this very important turn in the reflexivity of the market. The market is carrying with it that higher rates are bad for crypto. But the characterization of flows that I was describing this year, where what most of what you've seen is money coming into Bitcoin. What we've seen is this meme of treasury, fiscal irresponsibility in the US, foreigners selling treasuries and people looking for treasury substitutes. Bitcoin has actually become very positively correlated with higher yields and that thematic in a way which has been beneficial to crypto. And so, the, yeah, the strongest macro relationship I've seen this year, similar to gold, is that as we've seen a big steepening of the yield curve, so like the front end has been relatively stable, but the steepening reflecting the there's too many treasuries and they're too long duration meme has been actually pretty good for Bitcoin and been pulling money in. But the narratives can change. And definitely after you see a significant washout, you should expect the macro correlation to shift or change or evolve. I think it would be helpful to understand when people say they're macro funder trader, you've done a great job walking through specific examples or things that would be correlated with crypto. What do you spend your time looking at? So are you looking at charts on a daily basis and looking at relationships? Or are you doing more analysis and study? What do you spend your time using to analyze this new asset class? I'll mostly just talk about me personally, as opposed to any specific of our investment strategy, but it helps a lot. Every macro trader can have a really good top-down view, but some of the ways in which you reinforce that view the best is to actually go bottom-up on what's going on and you're trading. I've traded everything as a generalist to some extent, where at first you didn't really know what's going on, and then you dove deep into the underlying guts of the market and helped reinforce that view. And so that applies to crypto as well, where it's been pretty active in the non-Bitcoin space now for three years. And there's so much of what informs my views on market structure and supply and demand by looking at individual tokens. So there's a big part of the process, which is still trying to understand both the technology, but the economic system innovation that's happening with respect to when projects start to come up with new clever mechanisms where instead of having a big unlock, they decide to give people a new incentive to stake it for some future project. And if people are responding to that, then it must be really important for the market. So a lot of my day ends up looking a lot like someone whose investment approach is to do 
very fundamental work, but a lot of what it informs are these high-level heuristics about what's actually going on in this space and just try to be sober about all of that. What are some of the coherent narratives of today? I'll mention one. There are more incoherent narratives than coherent narratives. You can live in a narrative-driven world, and sometimes it can be really nihilistic or something, but the narratives are really important for the space as it relates to capital allocation, and so do spend a lot of time working on it. The most coherent one is when you look at the general Solana ecosystem, there was a perception by many within crypto and outside of crypto for sure that it was going to go down with Sam Bankman-Fried. And I think in reality, there's a certain amount of Solana DeFi activity, which was associated with him, but it was not really the main proposition behind Solana for most of 2021 as you tracked it. But the market still expected Solana to some extent to go to the grave. And what's been really interesting to see is the collective work of a group of Solana users and developers and owners who've come together to build new primitives in the Solana space to remind people of some of the initial value props, which weren't Sam Bankman-Fried. And so that in some sense, it's off a low base. The market discount of that being a major chain alongside Ethereum has increased from just throwing fake numbers out there. You take the market discount of it being there in the multi-chain world from 5% to 15%, that can make a really large move. And so when the market is doing what it's doing, and that starts to seem like the most potential convexity investment you can make, because you're talking about going from small ecosystem to large ecosystem, it attracts a bunch of new money. And that money is now being used to generate more and more activity on the space. So you're getting this mini reflexivity thing happening in Solana that is somewhat coherent, just based on a belief that there is quite a bit going for that general ecosystem, not to put a specific view on the token itself. Yeah, Solana is definitely an interesting one because it felt like the VC token, the SBF token, this very strong image to the average person or the average trader that I would speak with. And then its death was far more over-exaggerated just because I was like, of all the stuff that people have bought, this one we've actually used before, whereas some of the stuff, it wasn't even used and it got to a percentage of Solana. It goes back to this, is reflexivity bad in all cases? But the idea that Solana, unlike other chains, attracted a tribal group of users that remained loyal through the bear market, that's why they had an opportunity to grow in the same way, which you can contrast to other projects that either came later or people made less money on it or people used it less in order to create that loyalty that you could actually regrow it from the quote unquote grave. And so that's supporting your point. But the Solana NFT community, I mean, those were large groups of people that were there to help resuscitate it to the extent that the characterization that it was actually dead is correct. Obviously, that's a reflection of price more than actual if you were to try to interact with the community in a significant way. I think of Solana NFTs as kind of an interesting one where the normal cycle that I saw was Bitcoin would go up and then Ethereum would chase Bitcoin and then the alt chase Ethereum. And now people feel rich, they start buying NFTs. And then the whole thing collapses and Bitcoin outperforms on the downside. And you just have these mini rotations. What separates the institutional capital's view of it? So there's the people inside crypto that trade that what I just said makes all the sense in the world. But that's not the mainstream. Citadel, Millennium, Virtue, Jane Street aren't doing that trade. At least I don't think they are. Maybe they are. But when you sit down with more, when I say traditional macro funds or non-crypto funds, what's their take of these type of trends or plays? Is this just a micro cap niche distraction or are they interested in this asset class just depends on what price is doing that's the whole view any investment community at best there were half the people were interested in crypto but you run into a point where price is doing so much you're expected to keep up with assets overall and if crypto is doing this thing you're not participating then it can shift the dynamics of power towards 
looking to do something where normally that resistance is too strong. And that's the regime that we've been in for the last year and a half, where the skeptics or the anti-crypto community on those investment committees has basically been winning because they weren't fighting against price. I do think most people think that the last cycle, especially in retrospect, there was definitely a group of institutional allocators or investors or funds who were getting pretty excited about some of the thematics in 2021. I would say the view right now is you need to take the next step in attracting users, which is again, tying this thought back a few times. This is why I think the cycle will be most interesting to the extent that it has a new paradigm shift in the space where maybe it's ICOs and NFTs or whatever. What's the new thing that hopefully is associated with real users in the best case? And the combination of that and price, I actually think will lead to allocation this time much differently than even we saw last time. I track a lot of institutional allocators and are engaged to try to understand their allocation process. And the difference between right now and the start of the 2021 cycle is that there are a lot of groups that have done quite a bit of work and continue to get very smart on the space where adapting your alt portfolio to include crypto in it, that might take 12 months. And you started that process in August of 2021. And by the time you made meaningful progress, it was May of 2022. And you said, okay, I'm out of this stuff or whatever. But as opposed to just throwing the work in the garbage, those groups have continued to get smart and ask questions and are taking a knee on the 10-yard line, waiting for a region to finish their process and solidify a mandate. So I actually think as it relates to things like liquid crypto trading strategies, you can actually see people move much quicker than before. The Bitcoin ETF is a big deal on crypto side. The first question would be, no matter what happens, people are going to say it's priced in, it's not priced in. But you mentioned earlier that usually these things are going to be more underwhelming than expected, especially with something like this that people have waited for 10 years and have hung their hat on. I'm curious to get your take on the Bitcoin ETF and how you think the market currently views it, as well as what comes after that. If we just assume for a second that I believe there's a strong probability this thing happens in January, just reading tea leaves and mm -hmm. people's commentary, what's the thing that people do after that or look to? I think the consensus might be pretty correct on this one, or I don't have a strongly differentiated view in that the Bitcoin ETF could be pretty important as it relates to the distribution channels of some of the ETF issuers, which could mean allocations in some portfolios that based on the wrapper being wrong, or they're not being serious conversations about Bitcoin for people above the age of 40 or something, or I don't know, whatever you wanted to say, that could happen in a different way that drives some allocation of Bitcoin, but it will take time. So yeah, I think the market basically has an expectation that the flows will be underwhelming in a short period of time, because anybody who's going to buy it right away has basically had the chance to do it. Otherwise, and if there are flows, it'll probably be like a reflection of moving from one wrapper to the other. So I don't know if it's a large sell the news event, because there might have been some more stable allocation to Bitcoin over the last year. But what I would say is if the market were to keep going, I think it supports the idea that Bitcoin's period of outperformance, Bitcoin's outperformed on an outright basis. If you measure any sort of risk-adjusted performance, Bitcoin's been by far the best trade. So I think you would expect its alpha to deteriorate in further rallies. Part of that's related to the underwhelming flows and maybe the rotation out of Bitcoin as this narrative becomes mature. But I also have this separate view where so many people are in crypto in order to access a unique convexity profile. And that includes myself. I think it's like literally in some version for everybody. And when Bitcoin starts to be a trillion dollar market cap, which it's approaching, it starts to really feel like your upside and your downside are the same order of magnitude on a volatile asset. And that's just less 
satisfying, whether it's conscious or subconscious. This core part of Bitcoin, where it's in any year until 2021, it's I could 10x my money on Bitcoin. Just a lot of large numbers that becomes very difficult. I don't have these crazy price projections of market cap. And so conditional on the market rallying further, I would think Bitcoin's period of alpha is pretty mature. Yeah, I think the interesting part of when you look at Bitcoin, Ethereum, and then everything else, it does feel like it's possible that you end up in a bifurcated market where it's just so fascinating to be watching Bitcoin go from completely unaccepted, ridiculed, mocked, criminal coin, even though Jamie Dimon yesterday mentioned the desire to ban it and it's bad. You've got certain politicians running with that. But literally over the time it's been around, the view has changed to becoming a conversation among institutional allocation and almost just being accepted, where it used to be, I'm interested in blockchain, but I'm not interested in crypto. I'm here for the tech. And now it's like, I'll buy Bitcoin, but I'm not buying that crypto stuff. I just find that change so fascinating because it's hard to remember how vilified Bitcoin was in general before even the other tokens. And now it's like, I buy Bitcoin, but I don't buy the other stuff. That became accepted. Price. I'm half joking, but I'm also half serious. The part I'll just push back on is, I know what you're saying, and there's a part of me that is a believer that the narrative takes control. And no matter how much fundamental analysis you do, even of a cash flow performing company, there's what does the market also believe about your projections and what is it discounting on risk? So the game is extremely hard. When you just say price, if I just go the other side for a second, play the devil's advocate, do we just trade puka shells or some like silly nonsense like peppercorns? And just because we're profit-driven, greedy little humans, will trade anything? I think that's true of some people. You can have all these macro philosophical discussions about who buys crypto. It's the people who are feel left behind, and it's the only way that they can change their financial situation is to find a place with this much convexity, and you can map that into flows or something. So I think there's part of that. I also think there's a very tribal thing in crypto, which informs the Reddit bros or something, people forming communities around their speculation in crypto, which drive a lot of this, especially when you look at the market today. But I think there is a real asset allocation channel related to the one I described about what happens within an investment committee when price starts moving, which even if it works through something which seems much more legitimate, is basically accessing this everyone else's interest in creating outperformance by sourcing convexity. It's so unique with this asset class that you could allocate two percentage points and it can exceed the returns of all the other assets combined. And so whether you have to meet a funding target that is hard to achieve owning treasuries, although for a while there you got 5%, maybe we'll see that again, maybe we won't. Or the tech equities generally playing that same role in a way that market discounted the whole time. I do think the convexity profile is important. And in some sense, you could say the option gets cheaper when price goes down. And so people really believe that they should be increasing their bets. But it's almost like people mark up the implied volatility of that option. I might be getting a little technical here when it looks like price is going up, because then you can start to imagine some really large things happening in the space. And so I think whatever, subconsciously, that's how a lot of people allocate to the space. Unpack or to explain what you just said about the implied volatility on the way up. If you have an option that's struck at $100 and the underlying price is at $1, all else equal, it feels really far away, that option should be very cheap. If the price goes from $1 to $10 overnight, you have reason to believe that strike is now in play differently because we could just have nine more of those days or whatever. And something is happening in the space that makes the optionality more valuable. There's a sign of life that is interesting. And so now I'm willing to pay more for that option. Even if Black-Scholes, the option pricing formula would still say this option is worth zero because that strike price is so far. So the market prices that option higher because it now wants it more. And the, the input of price, that there's a relationship between the price of an option and the implied volatility 
where it's like an option for a more volatile asset has more value. And so when I say price goes up, another way to say the same thing is that the market's assessment of how volatile the underlying could be and make it more likely to reach the strike have gone up significantly. Most simplistic version is the higher price, the more attention it gets. It's easier to buy a higher price item sometimes than a lower price because there's a market signal that this is more interesting, which is funny. And yeah. crypto, as the most volatile asset class I've ever traded by far, it has this feedback of when it's falling, people are like, oh my God, why did I buy any of this? Like you said, everyone thinks the world's ending and it's going to zero. And then when it goes up, people think that, sure, this is going to be the next $50 trillion asset yeah. class to be worth more than all the things in the world, which is just a crazy cycle. Yeah. It still just fits in almost explicitly in an option for even the most serious investors. It's not just puka shells for a lot of people, even though like right now it's all vapor and proof of concept might be a characterization. There's something technology which has potential for us to create new platforms on the level of something really big. And so when you're buying it right now, you're basically saying the distribution is skewed in that way. And so there's some probability that's going to happen. And that convexity profile ends up being really valuable to everyone. I think that's actually why macro people generally, there's a few prominent crypto people these days that were macro traders in their past lives. And I think if there's one macro superpower in the traditional sense of macro, it's to identify cheap options or interesting convexity profiles. That's probably still true today for some people. But if you walked around a macro conference back in 2014 or something, it was a pretty high hit rate of people who are at least looking at crypto for that reason, whereas it's still getting shunned by a lot of other investors today. It's funny the point about how when people say who buys crypto and they do all these studies of people that are left behind or underbanked. And I think in foreign nations, the idea of stable coins or being able to hold dollars in a safe way in a country where your currency can be destroyed, I think it makes a lot of sense. There's always yeah. this US bias. With that being said, I do have a theory that a lot of it is wealthier people with disposable income. I talk to people of different economic levels. This topic of crypto is a much more common topic throughout the cycles where people that have capital whether it's a casino mentality or convexity as a fancy way to say upside, they couldn't get anywhere else. It definitely attracts people of the, I forget if it was Chamath or something, but it was a great quote of schmuck insurance that I don't understand this, so I need to learn yeah. about it. And then if I learn about it, then maybe I understand and I have something. And to your point, a lot of people just turned on a lot of chats and a lot of wallets to see what money was left in that thing they used to do because yep. they had left it for dead and went back to trying to make AI venture capital investments or whatever. It's such an interesting thing in the American capital markets, which is why I'm curious for funds like you, how the demand comes from the institutional side and the LPs that are like, if you've ever traded a market or have been exposed to investing, you don't have to be a macro investor to say, I want to go where there's an opportunity. So you want yeah. to be the 1,000th analyst to tell me the price of Apple? Or do you want to go find an investment that no one's ever looked like? And what I was taught is go find a CEO that no one's ever spoken to, learn the business inside and out, make a call. Crypto yeah. still has some of these prospects of the big boys or the true smart money where all edge gets taken out eventually aren't here yet. So it yeah. does seem like it's going to get a lot of people's interest over time. I totally agree. And I spent some time working with Peter Thiel and a big part of our discussion was how do you, as a hedge fund in San Francisco compete with well-resourced New York and trading macro. And I think that helped me arrive at this opportunity by believing strongly in, in trying to find markets that are less competitive. The, the asset allocator version of what you just said is we've just been to this point where, and we've had this discussion briefly before, but I'll just add it back here. Most of the asset management is being done by VCs. And it's almost like there's this large void of trading funds who are operating alongside of their activities. They have all this money in VCs right now. 
VCs have monetized some stuff in the past by selling to retail, but then VC portfolios got 50 times bigger. I have the open question, who is VC supposed to sell all these tokens to? There aren't big, large, sophisticated balance sheets that have brought in institutional money in a liquid mandate to own good tokens. And so it's like either the VC portfolios are all zeros or this needs to be much, much bigger. And from a market competition standpoint, that means that the risk transfer price of where VCs get to monetize the liquid funds is going to be very low until those things are more in equilibrium. Yeah, I think that unless you're one of the VCs that's really in the space yourself in trading, if you're a traditional VC who got dumped a bunch of tokens, which are now worth the funniest example, and I'm sure you've seen it before, are venture capitalists whose funds would have been gone if not for their single crypto investment. They truly had the venture capital invest returns that everyone's looking for. It just came from the thing and had no intention of it coming yeah. from. And now they have this thing that they're not totally sure what to do with. Now, I think a lot of it's been moved. There was an opportunity where they could take a steep discount on it and still be happy because that wasn't their core mandate. It will be interesting this time around to see of the funds that do understand, you have your actual traditional funds that are crypto native. I'm curious to see how the traditional funds that ended up in crypto, Solana's biggest example I have that they got exposure do that token specifically, if this is the beginning of a next upcycle, how active they are and what they look for in new projects. I agree. And to your point, if there were marks on all this venture equity, I don't even know if it would look that much different. Let's just say you're underwriting a VC opportunity and you buy something for $1 and you're doing it you go to $100. The thing goes straight to $30. As a VC, you're probably not going to do anything. But as a risk manager, you're like, I'm going to take one third of it off. But the boom bus asset class where the $30 is mostly a reflection of the reflexivity of the boom bust or whatever. The thing actually ends up going to zero because 90% of the stuff probably will. And so the opportunity as a trader is to try to interact with that cycle differently is the perspective I have. So David, this has been a lot of fun. We end our podcast with the question about the chart between optimism and depression, excitement, hope. Where do you think we are in the cycle? In my view, I feel strongest about being past rock bottom. And a lot of these charts just show it being up and to the right from here. If I were to draw my own chart as it relates to crypto specifically there, you're in this spike beforehand, which as I mentioned, is a very important part of the rally process, but in many cases may not be up and to the right from here. Again, depending on how you want to zoom the chart in or out. If you're like me, you're trying to operate for the next two weeks or two months, but you're going to zoom out over 30 years, then yeah, we're probably at the second form of optimism on our way to another major cycle. Awesome. Dave, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. If you enjoyed this episode, check out joincolossus.com. There you will find every episode of this podcast, along with transcripts, our weekly newsletter, and resources to continue your learning.